the the paper is is based um, kind of loosely on the introduction to a new translation with introduction and commentary that um, is item one on the handout, um, though arranged for as a separate paper today. I will be giving another paper on this topic in September at the Southern Association, but I shall try and avoid overlap between that, this paper and that. So the, the same view will, the same approach will be expressed, I suppose. So in this paper, I ask whether the meditations has a distinct overall function or aim, whether there is a core project in the work. Now, this may seem a rather strange question. The meditation is not the meditations is not a unified or systematic theoretical text. It consists of about five hundred entries of varying length, with no obvious principles of organisation, uh, apart from the exceptional book one. It's generally supposed to be a kind of philosophical notebook in which the second century AD emperor noted down his reflections at the beginning or end of the working day. Although Stoic philosophy is clearly the main source of inspiration, it is not and is not presented as a systematic Stoic work, and its orthodoxy as Stoic philosophy has often been questioned. Um, item two on the handout is just a recent companion which covers many of the uh, covers in more detail many of the topics I've just lightly sketched in that introduction. But we can still raise the question how far a single project underlies Marcus's reflections. Even if he wrote only for himself, he may still have done so with a definite purpose in view. Even if the work is essentially aesthetic, this still leaves open the question what aesthetic principles he accentuates. Since Marcus, as it seems, writes only for himself, he does not formally present his project to the reader himself. Um, the closest he comes to is perhaps this passage, which is um, handout item 12. And I'll just quickly read the translation. The text follows it, Dalton's text. People look for themselves, sorry, people look for retreats for themselves in the country by the coast. It's on the second page of the handout or in the hills, and you too are especially inclined to feel this desire. But this is altogether unphilosophical, when it's possible for you to retreat into yourself at any time you want. There's nowhere that a person can find a more peaceful and trouble-free re retreat than in his own mind, especially if he has within himself the kind of thoughts that let him dip into them, and so at once gain complete ease of mind. And by ease of mind I mean nothing but having one's own mind in good order. So constantly give yourself this retreat and renew yourself. You should have to hand concise and fundamental principles, which will be enough as soon as you encounter them to cleanse you from all distress and send you back without resentment at the activities to which you will return. What is it that you resent, human wickedness? Reflect on the principle that all, who, all rational animals are born for each other's sake, that tolerance is a part of justice, and that people do wrong unwillingly. And think how many people up until now have spent their lives in enmity, suspicion, hatred and direct conflict, only to be laid out in death and reduced to ashes, and stop resenting this. Or do you resent what is allocated to you from the whole? Then call to mind the disjunction, either providence or atoms, 
and the arguments proving that the universe is a kind of city. Or will bodily things affect you? Reconsider that when the mind takes hold of itself and recognizes its own power, it no longer associates itself with the movements rough or smooth of the breath. And finally, think what you've heard and assented to as regards pleasure and pain. Or will the trivial desire for fame distract you? Hold in view how quickly everything is forgotten, and the abyss of infinite time in the past and present, and the emptiness of applause, and the fickleness of lack of judgment of those who seem to praise you, and the narrowness of the scope in which this fame is confined. The whole earth is a mere point, and how very small a part of it is this corner in which we have our home, and here how many and what sort of people will sing your praises. Finally, then, remember to retreat into this little garden of yourself, and above all, do not agonize or strain yourself, but maintain your freedom and look at things as a man, a human being, a citizen, a mortal creature. Among the most readily available of the precepts into which you must dip, two should be included. First, that things in themselves do not affect the mind, but stand motionless outside it, and that all disturbances derive solely from inner judgment. Second, that all these things that you look at will change in no time at all and then cease to exist, and continually reflect on how many changes you have yourself experienced. The universe is change, and life is judgment. I hope you like the translation, which I have <laughs> been working on. <laughs> anyway, which will appear in this calendar. I'm not going to give a sort of explication of that of this this text, but but um, I'm happy to discuss it more fully later. Essentially, here Marcus seems to be kind of reflecting on his practice in the meditations, and he lists a number of what he calls concise and fundamental principles which he sees as able to give him psychological and ethical support. Um, these are the various Stoic principles. They are all in different ways Stoic principles, which he lists briefly in the remainder of the passage and which recur throughout the whole work, especially in the, the, the principles in 4 to 8. It's a suggestive passage, not least because he indicates that the various themes that he elaborates in his notebook as part form part of an overall project of self-renewal in preparation for further engagement in his political role. And I think it is, of all the meditations, the one which comes closest to some kind of program, as it were, of what, what, he's, what he's trying to do. But this passage on its own, of course, takes us only a short distance towards recognizing any underlying or unifying aim that Marcus may have. Does previous scholarship on this question take us further? Well, I give, in bare summary, three preceding answers, highlighting merits and limitations in these approaches, as it seems to me, and then set out my own view. Obviously, there's much more that could be said on, on these views, but um, it's just to give a kind of to a, to a horizon. First of all, and this is, uh, these are, this is um, item three in the handout. First of all, the approach of Mi uh, Michel Foucault. The meditations are viewed in the context of Foucault's general ideas about a pervasive care of the self in early Roman imperial culture. Uh, meditations 311, which I look at more closely later, is taken as illustrating Marcus's distinctive mode of analytic, self-conscious self-attention. The merits of Foucault's view are, I think, that Foucault uh, characterizes in his own terms a well-marked feature of Hellenistic, Roman 
and to some extent actually earlier ancient philosophy and culture, that is the idea that shaping and directing your life towards happiness or the human good is a project that we can reasonably expect of thoughtful, educated adult males. The limitations in Foucault's treatment are, I think, that his central preoccupation is with defining what your own individual sexual identity, that is the larger theme of that volume, it is the larger theme of the history of sexuality, I think. And that preoccupation, uh, increasingly one feels as one reads through the book, is remote from that of most, perhaps all, ancient philosophy. We can perhaps discuss this more fully later on. Um, so his comments on Marcus, um, which, which um, uh, um, have, have, have in the end, I think, rather little purchase, and his reading of, of 3.11 amounts to a little more than paraphrase, I think. So it, it's sort of good in general, but rather fades away when you look at it in detail. Secondly, uh, Pierre Adot, these are the items collected in, in handout four. The meditations are designed to serve as the vehicle for a threefold set of spiritual exercises or disciplines derived by Marcus from Epictetus' discourses, each of which constitute a practical or lived version of one of the three branches of Stoic philosophy, namely physics, ethics, and logic. Hence, the work as a whole is designed to enable Marcus to carry out the full program of ethical education or development as envisaged by Stoicism, including the ethical dimensions of Stoic physics and logic. Well, Adot's interpretation takes, much, takes us much further into Marcus's thought world, and it embodies the principle I'm advocating here that we should read specific details in the meditations in the light of Marcus's core project. But to my mind, I have to say, a limitation in Hado's, Hado's approach is a rather over-schematic form of analysis, uh, focused rather narrowly on his three disciplines, which leads him to under-describe, I think, the points of contact between meditations and the broader body of Stoic theory. Thirdly, item five in the handout, uh, Marcel van Ackeren, the meditations, he thinks, constitute a unique mode of self-dialogue, that is, self-directed dialogue, crafted to enable Marcus to reflect on key stoic themes and to make them part of the framework that he uses to shape his way of life. Although van Ackeren is sceptical about Adot's ideas that this forms a threefold program of exercises, linked with the three branches of philosophy, he agrees that Marcus draws widely on ideas drawn from these three areas, from ethics, physics, and logic. And volume two of his book, um, which is his Habilitation Schrift, volume two of his book provides a detailed correlation between the meditations and mainstream Stoic doctrines. My approach is closest to Van Ackeren. My main reservation about the book, which I think is a very useful book, is that in subdividing his account between formal aspects in volume one and doctrinal aspects in volume two, he doesn't, or at least the form of the work, doesn't bring out fully the linkage between Marcus's formal objectives and his treatment of Stoic doctrines, although that is actually precisely what 
the work is designed to do, but I think because of the scale of it, it doesn't quite bring out, I think, what, 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 um, what, what he wants to tell us. Well, my own view, partly shaped by Ado and partly by Van Akron especially, is this, I think. I think that the meditations, despite their unsystematic character, embody what we can see as a single project or approach, though one that's made up of four main strands. I give first a general statement of this project, and then of the four strands of which it is composed. First, the general statement about meditations. What we find are repeated attempts to encapsulate in a few highly charged sentences the broad vision of human life and its larger cosmic setting offered by Stoicism. The work communicates with remarkable power what it means to try to live one's life sincerely and urgently according to state principles. At the heart of the meditations is an idea central to Stoic ethics, though not perhaps unique to Stoicism. The key thought is that over and above the biological and external or formal dimensions of our existence, we should shape our lives as an ongoing journey towards an ideal state of character, understanding and mode of interpersonal relationship, which should constitute our target even though we will never achieve it fully. In the light of this core project, Marcus addresses challenges of which he is especially conscious, but which are also universal human concerns. These are facing the looming presence of our own death and recognising the significance of our communal roles and personal relationships, in spite of our shared mortality and transience. Marcus also addresses in his own distinctive way broader topics in the interface between ethics and logic, or the study of nature, that were crucial for Stoicism. He looks for reassurance, despite some uncertainties, that the capacities of human psychology and the nature of the universe support the kind of ethical vision that Stoicism offers. So that's a kind of overview of the uh, aim. In more detail, then, the four strands that I see as the, the main four strands within the work are these. One, to restate, restate it, is the first strand is the idea that over and above the biological, physical and external dimensions of our existence, we should shape our lives as an ongoing journey towards this ideal state of character and understanding and relationship. This idea derives from certain well-marked features of stoic ethics. Above all, the theory of ethical development as appropriation. Okay, the meditations repeatedly evoke key features of this theory in its personal and social dimensions and in the interplay between these. The first strand, what I'm calling the first strand, forms the main underpinning framework for the work. And in this sense, the first strand is the core project, if you like, of the work with the other three strands deriving from the first one. The second strand consists, I think, of a set of interconnected themes. These include death as a looming and inevitable presence, human and sometimes cosmic transience, and the physical dimension of, the purely phys physical dimension of human existence. 
The common element in these themes is that they're all unavoidable aspects of our human lives, which fall outside the scope of human agency, and thus outside the project of ethical aspiration and development that forms the first strand. However, the two strands are closely connected in that adopting the appropriate attitude towards such facts as death, that is, seeing them as matters of indifference, forms an integral part of the process of ethical development that is central to the first strand. The third and fourth strands represent ways in which Marcus explores the interface between ethics and logic, and more importantly, physics. Marcus is especially concerned with two ideas. One, which I'm calling the third strand, is that the distinctive features of human or rational psychology make us uniquely capable of undertaking the project of ethical development that makes up the first strand. The fourth strand broadens the scope of the meditations to the natural universe as a whole. The crucial idea is that the universe forms an ordered, rational, providential framework for the project of ongoing ethical development that Marcus urges on himself. In this sense, he, like all human beings, forms an integral part of a larger informing whole. There are certain, there are certain seemingly puzzling ways in which Marcus formulates aspects of both these strands, that is the third and the fourth, though I think the puzzle diminishes if we bear in mind his core objectives. But I focus here today on the first two strands, that is his, his central ethical project and the basis that this provides for confronting death and human transience. So I begin by looking in more detail at the, uh, his ethical outlook and the first strand, which is central, I think, for his uh, project in, in the world. So again, to, to restate some of the points, the first strand is the idea of life as an ongoing journey towards an ideal state of character or understanding which, though unrealized, forms the only valid goal for human aspiration. This is closely linked with the key stoic idea of ethical development as appropriation or familiarization, oikeosis, an idea which is made up of two distinct but related claims. One claim is that adult human beings are fundamentally capable of developing from self-preservation and selection of natural advantages, such as health, towards the recognition that virtue is the only good. This development is presented in Stoicism as natural rather than imposed by social forces. A second claim is that animals, including human beings, are naturally disposed to benefit others of their kind. In human beings, this motive is informed by rationality, enabling us to develop from primary or instinctive motives, such as parental love, towards more advanced, other benefiting action and attitudes of two main kinds. One kind consists in engagement in family and communal life in our own social context. The other consists in understanding any given human being as a fellow member of the universal brotherhood or citizenship. And in item six, I just give you know a couple of very well-known passages um, on oikosis taken from Cicero's De Finibus. The idea of ethical life as an ongoing quest towards an ideal state of character 
or understanding is pervasive in the meditations. Marcus repeatedly sets out an ideal of human nature towards which he is working and refers to this movement towards the ideal as a road or path in one of his recurrent images. Apart from Book 1, the meditations consist of a series of self-directed commands or urgings towards this ideal state of mind, which is sometimes characterised in terms used elsewhere to describe Stoic wisdom, or what's sometimes called dialectical virtue. Some of Marcus's most characteristic formulations, such as his analytic or stripping method, which I'll illustrate shortly, uh, are presented as enabling this, this process of ongoing search. Is the idea of life as an ongoing ethical quest linked explicitly by Marcus with the Stoic doctrine of development as appropriation? At first glance, Marcus seems to ignore this notion as a formal topic. Although there are some suggestive uses of the term oikeos, one's own, and its cognates. I give a few of the references in, in seven, but there are actually many of them. But I think, in fact, going beyond that, this formal fact, the idea of development as oikeosis is fundamental for the meditations, and actually for all state writings in practical ethics. I think it's very important. However, in Marcus's case at least, he does treat the topic in a selective way, and actually so does Epictetus. Um, as regards personal appropriation, Marcus does not focus on the idea of increasingly rational selection between different natural advantages, such as health or property, which in state theory formed the vehicle and early stages of ethical progress. Rather, he focuses on the final climactic stage the recognition that virtue is the only good, in comparison with which all other so-called goods are matters of indifference. Analogously, in the social dimension of appropriation, Marcus does not stress that the motive to benefit others is inbuilt in all animals, as exhibited uh, by parental love. The focus falls on two more advanced features of social development, namely considered engagement in social roles, and coming to regard other human beings as one's brothers or fellow citizens. It's sometimes been suggested that Marcus's selective treatment, which I've just illustrated, of the theme of appropriation, along with some related features of the meditations, reflects the influence of the early Stoic Aristo, who was later seen as unorthodox. Uh, for instance, uh, Gert Roskam does in the item I, I mentioned um, in handout 8. Aristo refused to recognise the significance of the distinction between naturally preferable and dispreferable indifference, and he defined virtue solely in terms of indifference. He also rejected the idea that specific forms of guidance were useful in ethical education, maintaining that general principles alone were needed to provide the basis for virtue. Marcus similarly ignores the distinction between preferables and dispreferables, and although providing himself with much ethical advice, he does so at a very general level. We know from an early letter by Marcus that he found in Aristotle's writings a powerful 
call to self-improvement. This is item 9. I'll read, read out the passage. Aristotle's books are a source of joy to me at present, and at the same time a torment. When they show me a better way, then of course they bring me joy. But when they show me how far my character falls short of these better things, your pupil, this is addressing Fronto, blushes over and over again and grows angry with himself. Because at the age of 25, I have not yet absorbed any of these excellent teachings and purer principles into my soul. <coughs> it's possible that Marcus's practice in the meditations is affected by his reading of Aristotle, although I doubt, actually, that he uses the meditations as a way of defining a specific theoretical position within Stoic ethics. I don't think it is actually that kind of work. And in certain respects, his approach isn't, doesn't follow Aristotle. For instance, unlike Aristotle, he attempts to combine ethics and physics and show the relationship between them, something that Aristotle rejected. So I think that, Aris, that um, Marcus's lack of in interest in the notion of preferables is better explained by reference to his overall project of ethical self-development. It can be linked with his selective treatment of the theory of development. Um, Marcus stresses, as I've just pointed out, the desired end point of ethical development, including recognizing the absolute value of virtue and seeing all other human beings as brothers, ideas which represent for him powerful sources of inspiration. The earlier stages of personal and social development are ignored by him as being less relevant for his project of self-development. So I think that Marcus's lack of attention to preferables and to specific social advice derives from his specific mode of ethical self-guidance. It's, it's what he thinks is going to be helpful to him, rather than expressing a considered theoretical stance. Okay, so now let's look at a specific passage. Um, this is 3.11, and this is the passage... Um, uh, the, the, my translation and, the, and, and Alphonse's text, 13, uh, sorry, 14 and 15. To the preceding pieces of advice, one more should be added. Always make a definition or delineation of what, whatever presents itself to your mind so that you, which would be in, can see distinctly what sort of thing it is when stripped down to its essence as a whole and in all its parts, and tell yourself its proper name and the name of the elements from which it has been put together, and into which it will be dissolved. Nothing is so effective in creating greatness of mind as being able to examine methodically and truthfully everything that presents itself in life, and always viewing things in such a way as to consider what kind of function this particular thing contributes to what kind of universe and what value it has for the whole universe, and for the human beings who are citizens of the highest city, of which all other cities are, as it were, mere households, and what this object is that presently makes an impression on me, and what it is composed of, and how long in the nature of things it will persist, and what virtue is needed to respond to it, such as gentleness, courage, truthfulness, good faith, simplicity, self-sufficiency, and so on. So in each case, you should say, this has come from God, this from the coordination and interweaving of the threads of fate and similar kinds of coincidence and chance. This 
from one of my own kind, a relative and companion, but one who does not know what is natural for him. But I do know, and so I treat him kindly and justly, according to the natural law of companionship, though aiming at the same time at what he deserves with regard to the things that are morally neutral. Well, this passage brings together two kinds of language which recur in the meditations and which are sometimes combined. That of analysis or definition, breaking things down to their component parts, and that of stripping things, so to show them naked. Despite the use of two different kinds of formulation, Marcus seems to have in mind the same essential process, namely getting to the ethical core of a given situation, though in a way that involves two aspects. One is viewing each situation as it presents itself as an opportunity for trying to express an appropriate kind of virtue, such as gentleness, courage, and so on, um, in, in uh, 3.11.3. This process is also represented as effective in creating greatness of mind, 3.11.2, Megaloprosuna. The theme of expressing virtue is closely linked with regarding other human beings as fellow citizens of the universe or as one's relatives or companions, 3.11.4. The other aspect of the process is recognising the material elements from which we are composed and into which we will, we will uh, like everything else, at some point dissolve, 3.11.1. Um, uh, elsewhere, these are presented as inferior aspects of our nature, but not, therefore, ones we can wholly evade or ignore. Underlying distinctions which help to make sense of this combination include those, the distinction between virtue and indifference and between what does and does not lie um, within our power as ethical agents. What is involved, in part at least, is stripping away the reputation and appeal of indifference, such as health and wealth, which are linked with the body or material aspects of life, and revealing the ethical essence of the situation, which is, which is the scope it gives us as agents for exercising the virtues. The passage illustrates the relationship, I think, that Marcus sees between the first two strands in the work, the core project of ethical self-improvement, and coming to terms with the transient nature of human existence, above all, one's own death. My main concern here is to bring out the linkage between this passage and the Stoic theory of development as appropriation. In personal development, the individual strand, Marcus's focus is not on the process of rational selection between natural advantages, which he doesn't mention, but on the final stage of recognising the absolute value and desirability of virtue by contrast with indifference. So here, the process of stripping situations to their essentials consists in part in conceiving any given situation as a means of, of seeking to express virtues such as gentleness, courage, truthfulness. The contrast with the conventional valuation of things such as health is signalled especially in the final sentence of the chapter where he uses this phrase, entweis mesois, meaning indifference. The passage also reflects Marcus's treatment of the social dimension of development. 
And he does not focus, uh, again, on the earlier stages, on the idea of the instinctive desire to benefit of others ones, of one's kind, shared by humans and other animals, and manifested in parental love. He accentuates here just one aspect of the outcome of development, namely coming to regard any given human being as a fellow citizen of the universe and a member of the brotherhood of humankind. The passage indicates that Marcus focuses on those aspects of Stoic theory that best match the project of rational, self-guided aspiration that lies at the heart of the meditations, rather than reporting or expanding state doctrine in a complete form for its own sake. There's a further interesting point to note here, I think. A feature of our evidence for the state theory of appropriation is the absence of explicit theoretical analysis of the relationship between the two aspects of development, personal and social. We don't know whether this gap was addressed in some text not available to us, or whether there is some more fundamental reason for its absence. <coughs> However, it is characteristic of the practically oriented approach we find in Epictetus and Marcus to underline the integral linkage between these two dimensions of ethical development. In 3.11, for instance, the two aspects are juxtaposed in a way that implies that they run in parallel with each other and reinforce each other. The final sentence of the chapter is especially suggestive, but I do know, and so I treat him kindly and justly, according to the natural law of companionship, though aiming at the same time at what he deserves in respect to the things that are morally neutral. Two points seem to be implied here. One is that treating someone kindly and justly, that is virtuously, goes hand in hand with seeing such people as fellow members of the Brotherhood of Humankind. The other, more subtle point, is that one's own progress in understanding the absolute value of virtue does not rule out recognising the claims of other people to what they are entitled regarding things such as health or property, even though these things are now understood, understood by the agent as matters of indifference in comparison with virtue. Thus, it seems that writings such as the Meditations or Epictetus's oral teachings were seen as means by which to explore the relationship between these two key aspects of ethical development, at least as regarding uh, the working out of the re their relationship in practical life. The passage, this 3.11, also illustrates a related feature of Meditations, uh, namely his stress on the social and political dimension of human life. Although this side of the meditations is not always fully acknowledged, it forms a substantial element and manifests itself in a number of themes, all of which strongly reflect stoic, standard stoic thought. One motif in the meditations is Marcus's repeated use of the combination of terms rational and social, or rational and political, to characterize the distinctive features of human nature. Another is the presentation of the city or community, whether it's human or cosmic, um, the city of gods and humans, as a key part of the normative framework for shaping ethical life. A third is repeated, though, as I've shown selective reference to Stoic thinking about the social aspect 
of ethical development as appropriation. It's striking, actually, how often Marcus reflects on the ethics of interpersonal behaviour in ways that are sometimes both subtle and acute. And this is also prominent in his comments on exemplary individuals in Book One, where he identifies interpersonal skills. He gives quite a lot of stress to that. Many of these passages exhibit the rather complex asymmetrical relationship to other people, which, following Peter Strawson, we might characterize as objective rather than reactive, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. But this attitude should not, I think, be taken as showing lack of concern for other people, or, in a sense, lack of affective engagement with them. What sort of political thinking do we find in meditations? And how does this relate to his core project? Although his comments on this topic are sparing, especially outside Book One, the question of his political ideals takes on an added interest given his status as emperor. How far can his thinking be located within mainstream stoic political theory? This is a difficult question to answer, partly because of the incomplete nature of our evidence. On the face of it, there's a marked discontinuity between an early radical or, uh, or utopian phase of Stoic theory and a later phase or phases in which Stoic thinkers accommodated their ideals more closely to the conventional framework of Greek or Roman uh, social and political life. There's been much debate among scholars, especially recently, about whether there were in fact two or more phases, and if so, how they are you know, in stake thought, political thought, and if so, how they're related to each other. I give just a couple of references of rather different approaches in item 9, referring to Schofield and Catch a Vote. Whatever the position was in earlier stake thought, the viewpoint assumed in the meditation seems quite clear and is similar to that found in previous works in stake practical ethics in this period. While Marcus often adopts general regulative ideals, such as the citizen of the universe, citizenship of the universe, or the brotherhood of humankind, as in uh, 3.11, he also advises himself in terms which evoke his specific social role, urging himself to behave as suits a Roman and a man, uh, 2.51, or as a statesman, a Roman and a ruler, 3.52. These two ideals are sometimes combined in a way that alludes to the Stoic ideal of dual citizenship, both a local and a universal citizenship. For instance, uh, 6445, as Antoninus, his official name, my city and fatherland is Rome, as a human being, it is the universe. It is only what benefits these cities which is good for me. The underlying thought seems to be that one should aim to achieve the highest ideals of Stoic social ethics, being a citizen of the universe, by complete and consistent engagement with one's localised social role, which was, in Marcus's case, of course, being the Roman Emperor. Marcus's affiliation with his local role is accompanied by two provisos. One is that he should aim to model himself on the ethically best examples of those people who have fulfilled that role. In Marcus's case, the main model is his adoptive father, Antoninus Pius. 
Second, he should play the role in a way that avoids corruption by its external advantages or social trappings. This means for Marcus not being turned into a Caesar or stained with the purple, as he puts it wonderfully. Um, implicit in these qualifications and in his general treatment of this theme is the aim of coordinating personal with social appropriation as conceived in the Stoic theory of ethical development. Thus, the goal is to act out one specific social role in a way that is consistent with the proper valuation of virtue rather than indifference, using the role as a, as a vehicle for virtue, and that's compatible with treating other human beings properly, that is to say, as fellow citizens of the universe or relatives, as he indicated in 3.11, uh, 2 and 4.5. Another ethical subject on which Marcus's approach reflects and illustrates the standard ethical, the standard Stoic approach, is in his treatment of emotions or passions, pathé. Stoic thinking on emotions has often been criticised in antiquity and modern times, but some recent scholarship has underlined the coherence and credibility of their theory. It's crucial, I think, to recognise that their conception of emotions is unified or holistic rather than intellectualist. Emotions, as in some modern cognitive theories, are conceived as psychophysical events which depend on the agent's beliefs, specifically beliefs about what is good or bad. The kind of emotions we experience are shaped by our overall belief set and ethical state. Ethical development brings with it a change to the content and effective quality of our emotions as we move from emotions based on misguided conceptions of value towards the good emotions, eupatheiae, of the wise person. Marcus's presentation of emotions reflects all these features. His treatment of emotions forms an integral part of the project of deliberate ethical development that is central to the meditations and reflects the focus on the scope for exercise of agency that's typical of his approach. He stresses not only that the emotions we feel necessarily express our value judgments, but also that we can prevent misguided emotions by refusing to add inappropriately the judgment that this or that experience is good or bad. He also stresses that we can exercise agency to produce, or at least work towards, good emotions and related states. In fact, despite the impression often formed that the meditations are pessimistic in tone, the work is unusually rich in its vocabulary for positive emotional states that are in line with ethically sound judgments and attitudes. Although the focus is on change in value judgments, Marcus does not ignore the affective or experiential dimension of emotions, which also forms part of standard Stoic theory. The Stoic theory of emotions has often been seen as expressing a detached, even inhumane or heartless attitude towards other people. My earlier discussion of Stoic thinking on social and political engagement as reflected in the meditations should help to remove this impression. Marcus also illustrates the nature of Stoic thinking on the emotional dimension of interpersonal love. And as I suggested earlier, this can be brought out by referring to Peter Strawson's distinction between reactive and objective 
attitudes. Stoicism does indeed aim to produce detachment from many of the emotions, or the what one might call reactive attitudes, often generated within interpersonal relationships, such as anger and grief, which Stoics see as based on false conceptions of what really matters in life. Marcus also, following Epictetus, stresses that our affection for other people needs to acknowledge the un unavoidable, natural fact of the physical vulnerability and mortality of loved ones and of ourselves. But Marcus also reflects the fact that Stoic theory promotes other kinds of emotional response, including certain kinds of love and admiration, which are in line with well-grounded value judgments. Since most people have emotions or reactive attitudes based on misguided beliefs, our treatment of other people needs to acknowledge without mirroring this response. This leads to a rather complex, indirect response to most other people, which is similar to Strawson's objective attitude, uh, which his examples are the psychiatrist and, and patient. And this indirectness can give the impression of detachment or coldness. But Marcus indicates, I think, the humanity of approach underlying this response, while also underlining the need not to be drawn into unconsidered reactive attitudes oneself. Well, so far, I've focused on what I see as Marcus's core project in the meditations, namely carrying forward a program of ethical self-guidance and self-improvement conceived in Stoic terms. I've suggested that this project underlies and informs the other three strands in the work, and I just want to end with a few remarks about the second strand, what I'm calling the second strand. This is Marcus's treatment of a set of features which represent, on the face of it, more negative aspects of human life, but which I think are underpinned by a positive approach. These themes do not form a standard part of stake ethics as normally understood, but they do contribute to Marcus's overall ethical outlook as expressed in the meditations. There are three main interlocking themes, death, the transitory nature of human life, transience in nature, though that's combined with the idea of cosmic cycles or eternal recurrence, and the purely physical or material aspects of human existence. These themes sometimes form the main or sole topic of a passage and are often treated by scholars in isolation from Marcus's general ethical concerns. And sometimes they're seen as expressing a purely personal pessimism or as reflecting a negative or world-rejecting stance that's, that's closer to cynicism or Platonism than Stoicism. However, I think that to make best sense of these motifs, we need to take them in conjunction with Marcus's core project and ethical ideas, with which they are in fact quite often combined. I focus here on his treatment of death. Death, as, as Richard, Richard Rutherford pointed out, is the subject of, of more than 60 chapters. It's a very major theme in, um, in Marcus's work. And it reflects, I think, standard features of Stoic theory, such as that length of life is irrelevant to human happiness, or that death is, is not in itself a bad thing. The salient underlying point is that such factors are matters of indifference in comparison with virtue 
which is the only basis for happiness and the only thing which is good in a strong sense. Marcus's treatment also reflects Stoic approaches to the therapy of emotions or to consolation. As Cicero brings out in his review of therapeutic and consolatory strategies in Tusculum's 3-4, Stoics drew on a range of ideas partly shared with other schools. These include preparation for what are normally seen as future disasters, preparatio futurorum malorum, a strategy shared with the Cyrenaics, and removing the belief that one has an ethical obligation to grieve for the dead, a motif shared with the Epicureans. But what underlies both these motifs in the case of Stoicism is the belief that death is in itself not a bad thing. So we can infer behind Marcus's treatment of these themes the implied presence of Stoic emotions to emotional, sorry, of Stoic approaches to emotional therapy and uh, the ethical principles on which these are based. But the most substantial reason for thinking that Marcus thinks about these things from his normal Stoic standpoint is that in a number of passages they're explicitly combined with this approach. In 3.11, for instance, the analytic or stripping method consists of two linked aspects. These are focusing on the ethical core of any given situation, the scope given for trying to express virtue, and recognising that we do so as transient psychophysical entities and as an integral part of the natural world which is pervaded by change. These aspects are often linked in this way in the meditations. The connection, this connection between the core ethical project and the themes of death, transience and physicality, this connection carries two further implications. One is the idea stressed earlier in the paper, namely that over and above our physical or biological movement from cradle to grave, human beings can make their lives the expression of an ethical project of ongoing ethical aspiration or self-improvement. Marcus, in juxtaposing these two strands in his thought, sometimes highlights the contrast between the mortal transience and physicality we cannot control and ethical objectives which depend on our agency. In other passages, he stresses that our ethical project can be taken forward in part at least by, by the very fact of recognising and accepting the inevitability of our physical transience without treating this as negating the validity of our aspirations. We express our agency or try to express the virtues such as courage or greatness of mind in part by acknowledging that we do so as transitory Psychophysical entities whose lifespan and location within nature is to a large extent not up to us. It's notable and poignant that this theme is especially prominent in Book 12, which may have been the last written by Marcus, especially the final chapter. The recognition of these two crucial dimensions of human existence arises naturally from the distinctive vision of human life offered by Stoicism as a whole. As I've suggested elsewhere, distinctive of Stoicism is a combination of ethical rigour or aspiration of a kind that strongly evokes Socrates or Plato, and naturalism, seeing ourselves as psychophysical organisms within the natural universe. In his juxtaposition of these two strands in his ethical outlook, Marcus makes sense for himself 
of these two dimensions of Stoicism, and doing so can also be seen as part, an integral part of the project of ethical self-improvement that is central to the meditations. And I'll just end by reading the translation, Robin Hart's translation, of these two final passages on the handout, handout 16, which I think illustrate the way he combines these two themes. 32, you've got the Greek in front of you, how small a fraction of infinite and unfathomable time has been assigned to each of us, for all too swiftly it is followed, swallowed up in eternity. And how small a part of universal substance, how small a part of universal soul, and how small is this clod of earth that you are creeping over when set against the earth as a whole? Or rather negative, it might seem. But bearing all of this in mind, imagine nothing to be of any great moment apart from this. That you should, apart from this, that you should act as your own nature directs, that is your human nature, and endure whatever universal nature brings. These are characteristic formula formulations in which he talks about his ethical, ethical project. And 36, my friend, you have been a citizen of this great city of the universe. What difference if you live in it for five years or a hundred? For what is laid down in its laws is equitable for all. Where is the hardship then? If it is no tyrant or unjust or unjust judge who sends you out of the city, but nature who brought you into it. It is just as if the director of a show, after first engaging an actor, were dismissing him from the stage. I haven't played all five acts, only three. Very well, but in life three can make up a full play. For the one who determines when it is complete is he who once arranged for your composition and now arranges for your dissolution, while you, for your part, are responsible for neither. So make your departure with a good grace as he who is releasing you shows a good grace. As I say, this might be the final message of Marcus to himself. And a rather fine one, I think. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.